This is the Santita Jackson Show. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Santita Jackson Show, WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, and AM 950 Radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. Hey, everybody, the DNC is on their way to Chicago, or they are on their way to Chicago. We will be here in Chicago in the summer of 2024. So you don't want to miss the latest and the greatest news. All of the players from the Democratic National Committee will be on this station. So please keep it locked here and spread the word about the great WCPT. I am Santita Jackson. I want you to call me this morning, 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. We're going to be talking with Attorney C.K. Hoffler about this decision that's in the Supreme Court. They're listening to the Purdue case. The Sackler family owned Purdue Pharma. And what's interesting about them is that... Uh, Their personal wealth, and they've reaped billions, 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 their personal wealth has been protected, has been protected uh, while their company's uh, public wealth is being, uh, they're turning a portion of it over to people who they help to addict to opioids. And when you see uh, the number of pills that were dropped on communities, it was very clear if there's some causal link between the addiction that these poor white communities experienced and the hundreds of millions of pills that were dumped on communities in the tens of thousands. Yeah, but you cannot make this stuff up. I'm good. The numbers will astonish you. And we've talked with Chris McGreal from the, from the Guardian. Indeed, his book, American Overdose, is a must-read. But we've got more to talk about with with Attorney Hoffler, because now the families who were addicted to the opioids, opioids are saying, look, no, 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 it's not enough for Purdue to pay. I want the Sacklers to pay. They should not remain billionaires while those of us who they feel addicted them to these opioids why they go free and become and stay very wealthy. So what do you think about that? Call me at 773-763-9278-773-763 WCPT and then Harvard president and MIT's president and UPenn's president. Boy, they were grilled before Congress yesterday uh, and they were accused of not protecting Jewish students on the campuses. And so the question becomes, um, is that true? Number one. And, are they supposed to protect Jewish students? Because on one level, you can't really protect people from hate speech, but what you can do is try to create an environment where people are not hateful, or are they trying to shut down, or is this an attempt to shut down discussion, to mute pro-Palestinian voices? I want to know what you think, and what is the appropriate way to be on a college campus? See, when you get to college... Everybody's got kind of different kinds of opinions about everything, about everything. And you hear, at least you should on a campus, you hear wide, you can hear everyone from the most right wing to the most left wing. And you go and you hear them and you, and you listen, right? Well, some people are saying that that should not be so. So you let me know. I mean, I think you should, you know, and I think that you should make your own decisions and, and there's that. Uh, but, you know, I want to know what 
your thoughts are. Call me at 773-763-9278, and give me your thoughts. Let's get to some of these headlines. Donald Trump was accused of, quote, sending supporters, close quote, to the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Federal prosecutors went further in tying the former president to the 2021 attack at a new court filing. They accused him of lying about elections and encouraging violence. Prosecutors said they intend to introduce evidence of these acts at the former president's criminal election obstruction trial scheduled to begin in D.C. in March, right in the throes of the primary season. Senate negotiations over sending more aid to Ukraine are breaking down. Republicans are demanding U.S. border restrictions in exchange for billions in Ukraine aid. Yesterday, at least a dozen senators walked out of a classified briefing. What do you think? Should more money go to Ukraine? Is Ukraine uh, being stood up? Can we afford to fund all of these wars? Really, really, really? What could tens of billions of dollars do for your city, your town, your state? You let me know. The Senate is set to hold a vote on the package today, but it appears likely to fail. Israeli strikes in southern Gaza are overwhelming hospitals. Indeed, the United Nations says that the most unsafe place for a child to be in the world is Gaza. 70% of those killed in these Israeli strikes have been women and children. A school where civilians were sheltering was bombed as Israel expanded its offensive in southern Gaza, the South's largest city. What do you think about that? Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had a contentious meeting with families of hostages still held by Hamas who accused him of not doing enough to return them. The fourth Republican primary debate is in Tuscaloosa, Alabama tonight. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, who's surging in the polls, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy will be on the stage tonight. Haley has emerged as the most viable alternative to Trump, but former President Trump is still far and away the favorite in the Republican column. Trump critic Liz Cheney is considering a third-party presidential run. Remember, though, everybody, she voted with President Trump 90 percent of the time, 90 percent of the time that she was in Congress. Fully automatic weapons are reappearing on U.S. streets. A small device that plugs into some semi-automatic handguns and rifles can make them capable of firing 20 bullets in one second. The devices can be made by, get this, using 3D printers in 2021. 27 guns were recovered with these conversation switch devices. Those are some of the headlines, everybody, in Chicago. It's going to be a crisp day, but 40 degrees and cloudy. Minneapolis, St. Paul, 44 degrees, partly sunny. In the NBA, the Hornets will be facing Chicago in Chicago, and the Spurs will be facing Minnesota in Minnesota. No NFL games last night. In the NHL, the Predators 4, Chicago 3, the Wild, hey, congratulations, 5, and the Flames 2. Oh, Pastor Vicki Johnson, so much is going on. So much is going on. How are you and how can we worship with you? I can't believe I don't I don't know how you're doing Two, not one, but two churches. But uh, you go, my sister. <laughs> well, yes, uh, do the best that I can. Uh, you can worship with me 
at Lebanon Lutheran Church at 9 o'clock a.m. on Sundays at 13100 South Manistee, and then at 1130 a.m. at St. Thomas Lutheran, 80th and Jeffrey Boulevard at 1130 a.m. for the Hour of Power. I love it. So give us good news today. We need it. We need it. There's just so much going on, right? Indeed, indeed. Well, good morning, Santita, and good morning to all of your morning stars and friends. There is good news. Mothers do it. Fathers do it. Children do it. Medical professionals do it. Officers do it. Essential workers do it. Ministers do it. Musicians do it, and even radio personalities do it. What is it that everyone does? Stress. I'm sure you are all familiar with stress, a state of mental or emotional strain caused by adverse circumstances. High levels of stress normally manifest in the body in various ways, such as acne, headaches, chronic pain, sickness, insomnia, lack of energy, changes in appetite, depression, and a lowered immune system, to name a few. You will hear people advising you not to stress, which I think is unrealistic because you are bound to be worried or concerned about something in life. So taking this into consideration, I'm going to just ask you to stress less, stress less. You really don't have to be stressed about everything all of the time. Here are some tools that you can use to help you stress less. First of all, you can meditate. Quiet your mind with a guided meditation. There are plenty of them online. Secondly, you can exercise. Whatever your form of exercise is, walking, swimming, working out, or doing yoga, exercise helps you to stress less. You can use positive self-talk. Instead of bringing yourself down, talk yourself up. Fourthly, you can use aromatherapy. Put scents around you that are calming or bring pleasant memories, like an apple pie. Fifthly, you can get a hug from someone or even give yourself a hug. You can make time for leisure, read a book, watch a movie, get a manicure a pedicure, work a puzzle, or take a nap. You deserve it. 
And then seventh, you can pray. Matthew, the 18th chapter and the first verse says that we should always pray and not faint. During this holiday season where stress is on the rise, I ask that you use tools to stress less. You will be glad that you did. If you can do this, and I'm sure that you will, then to me, that's good news. Appreciate that. Even as you hear my chug-a-lug in the background, you know, I realize <laughs> I had I developed adult acne. Oh my goodness! In my in my mid thirties, early thirties, quite frankly. And it, what was interesting, I was talking to a friend of mine who's known me since about that time. And, you know, he said, you look so bright, you know, buoyant and fresh. And he said, you know, when I met you, you had a lot going on, didn't you? I said, and I looked back at, to that time, Pastor, and I really did. I yeah. was under so much stress. And the thing is, I was using all of these drying products on my skin. And my skin is oily. So, you know, when I finally went, went to, not to Betty Odom, because, who's a great esthetician, and everyone, I go to Betty O's here in Chicago, but uh, I went to an esthetician when I lived in New York, and I, I found one, uh, and she said, the products that you're using on your skin are too drying. Mm. You're being, she said, you're being too hard on yourself. Mm. What a metaphor, right? What a metaphor. Yeah. Made me, made me do some thinking about how hard I was being on myself. And um, so I want to thank you for that because stress kills. <laughs> oh, yeah. Life. You know, so. Yes. Could you, we need to hear a little bit more of that during the holidays because this is a very stressful time for people. I mean, unhappiness is stressful, all that. Pastor, yes, yes. Pastor, how can we worship with you? Because I, I, I think I need to get one of these sermons so I can de-stress myself. <laughs> yeah. You can worship with me at Lebanon Lutheran, 13100 South Tennessee at 9 o'clock a.m. each Sunday. And then scurry down or up to St. Thomas Lutheran at 80th and Jeffrey Boulevard at 11.30 a.m. for an hour of power. Love you, Pastor Vicki Johnson. Pastor Vicki Johnson, sending you so much love today. Love you, Thank Sandy. You. Huh? Thank you so much. You know, we've got Dr. Shanina Knighton, the world-renowned Dr. Shanina Knighton. So glad that she's back from Saudi Arabia having been teaching over there. What's on your mind this morning? And what more than that, what should be on our minds this morning? <laughs> Dr. Knight. Good morning. So I'm actually, um, it's interesting, in sync with the pastor in regards to just talking about stress and thinking about, honestly, she's right. Like in this season where we should be thinking more about gratitude, people are stressing about what it is they don't have opposed to what it is that they do have. Mm. and don't understand how that is impacting their immune system as well as their decision-making. Yes, stress has a negative impact on the immune system, meaning that when you are stressing, 
you are releasing chemicals within your body that are causing your body to fight against itself instead of help you. And so what happens is, is as your body is fighting against itself, that might mean that you're more tired, you're more fatigued. That means that you may not be thinking as clearly as you should in order to be able to make decisions. And so when we talk about getting adequate sleep, when people are stressed, they don't get sleep like they should because they're too busy thinking about what it is that they're stressed about. But sleep helps boost your immune system. So you have to try hard to get enough of it. When people are stressed out, they may not eat as much as they should. Good nutrition, including lots of fruits and vegetables, helps to fuel the body. Like, it helps to fuel the body to make sure that it's healthy. And I always emphasize people getting their zinc. Zinc in itself is a a vitamin, a mineral, you know, that increases the production of white blood cells and T cells that help you fight against infections. So making sure that you're getting, you know, your nuts, your seeds, your beans, and your meats that are high in zinc. Um, it's also, too, you know, when you are stressed, that if you are one uh, someone that drinks alcohol, making sure that you're limiting your alcohol intake for multiple reasons. One, because of the chemicals that are in it that lower the immune system. But the other aspect of it is the sugar. Remember how I mentioned before, 75 grams of sugar lowers the immune system for five hours. Eating your carbs and drinking your carbs and what that can do to the body really quick. It's interesting. I know quite a few people that got sick a week after Thanksgiving or within a week after Thanksgiving. And when I asked them what it is that they enjoyed or they partook in, The sweets, honestly, I know for sure is what took them down. When we think about stress, sometimes we may tend to neglect our body and not exercise. Remember, regular exercise lowers stress and it can help maintain a healthy weight. It also helps to improve lung function. So when you're having some sort of respiratory illness, sometimes it's harder for you to breathe. And so weak weak lungs, they have a harder time fighting off infections or fighting off a cold such as COVID-19 and pneumonia. So please make sure that you're exercising even during the times of stress. And always, 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 as I emphasize Antita, I talk about the importance of hand hygiene. Remember, hand hygiene is the single most important way for you to prevent the of germs, which means either getting germs or either receiving germs, getting germs or transmitting germs. So it's very important that you are cleaning your hands. During COVID, remember that there were instances of where we may have not had a vaccine or other treatment. Hand hygiene was all that we had. During H1N1, before there was a vaccine, hand hygiene, and making sure that you screened yourself from sick individuals was all that we had. It's very important that we take care of our bodies. It's very important that we understand that even still, we may want to get people gifts for the holiday. We may want to go certain places. We may have certain expectations of ourselves. But just during this time, just remember, practicing gratitude can help to lower that stress 
of thinking about something that you may not have or something that you wish you were doing. Wash those hands, everybody. I mean, thoroughly clean them. <laughs> Let's talk about the Sacklers and the opioid crisis. Should they keep their billions even though they flooded communities, poor white communities, with opioids and every place else? But they really, really hit these poor white communities. Back in just a minute on the Santita Jackson Show. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show. Call me at 773-763-9278. Want to know what's on your mind today? We're going to be talking about who is accountable, who should be held accountable for this opioid crisis. We already have seen Purdue Pharma have to turn over billions of dollars, but the Sackler family who own Purdue Pharma have been able to hold on to their billions. Is that right? What do you think about that? Hmm. And then what about these... The presidents of Harvard, MIT, and UPenn who were grilled, I mean, boy, oh, boy, did they face um, a really, really tough time on Capitol Hill yesterday. They were accused by many, by Republicans, of not protecting uh, Jewish students on these campuses, shielding them from anti-Semitism, from even maybe allowing it. What do you think about that? I mean, if you allow pro-Palestinian rally, is that a threat? Well, I want to know what your thoughts are. Uh, in the meantime, we're talking about how families are rallying for opioid accountability. We need to know who should be held accountable. Before, before we do, I've got Ken on the line. Ken, what's on your mind, sweetie? Good morning. Morning. Good morning, San Peter. I'm a morning star. <laughs> I love you. I love it. I love it. I love it. Even if you're not a morning okay. star, I still love you. What's on your mind? Oh, well, San Peter, I... Uh, I, I still think about the day I was at work, a uh, certified drug counselor, used to dealing with uh, opiates from the street, at uh, the street level. Well, you know, mm-hmm. uh, hell, you know, white the pony and stuff like that, you know, white horse. No, uh, but, I don't know, but tell me. You don't know? <laughs> okay, no, I mean, well, no, honestly, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I really don't. Well, that's, well I, I'm used to dealing with people who are addicted to street drugs. Oh, okay. And so I'm fielding a call on the phone. A lady calls in, and she says, I need help. I'm addicted to opiates. And I said, what, heroin? And she said, no, uh, pain pills. Hmm. I'm, I'm hooked on pain pills, and I need help. I said, lady, this is a, 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 a street drug. You know, a drug. This is a drug. Yes, I'm, I'm hooked on a drug, pain pills. And I'm speaking to this very day, and this has been maybe uh, 30 years or 20 years later. I still recall that event uh, of, of being feeling helpless because my training wasn't to deal with medication. It was to deal with, with uh, marijuana, uh, mm-hmm. cocaine, heroin. It was to deal with that, 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 that. Some somebody, some doctor writing a prescription. So the people who enabled 
this opiate addiction among the seniors. And I mean, there was a movement now. Okay, hold on a second. I can hear something in the back. Hmm? Hold hold on, Ken. I can hear something in the background. But I got another minute for you because I want uh, Attorney C.K. Hoffman to get to that. My air conditioning. Let me change another one. Okay, don't. Okay. All right. I can. So I am still devastated by uh by the uh by that by that call from a, a sister who says I'm hooked on heroin. I mean mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hooked on medication and my husband wants me to get help. And uh and I and I just I was paralyzed. Couldn't couldn't I try I transferred the call to a, a physician but in this case the physician is the problem. Uh, Well, what about, well, then let me ask you this. What about Big Pharma? I mean, because now what we're about to pivot to is along the lines of what you're talking about. The Sackler family, um, they own Purdue, the Big Pharmaceutical Company. And wait a minute. Ken, hold on. This is, this is unbelievable. There is a town in West Virginia, Kermit, West Virginia, 380 people, 5.7 million opioid pills were delivered to that town between 2005 and 2011. 5,200 pills for every man, woman, and child. Let me give you another. Two West Virginia local authorities accused the distributors, um, these people, of of turning this Cabell County uh, into ground zero of the opioid epidemic by flooding the area of 90,000 people with 100 million opioid pills. What do you, over a decade, what do you make of that? Well, I, like I said, it's, it's all enabling. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, I know Who about should be accountable? Walgreens and Walmart and everything. But yeah, I think that the people who profited, uh, uh, everyone who profited should be, uh, uh, should have to pay to the piper. For profiting, okay. uh, uh, but everyone, you know, no one. If you if you are part of that enabling line of drugs, uh, 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 medical, pharmaceuticals, you are part of that enabling line. You should be penalized. You should. Well, you, you know, should have your day in, in court, uh, and not just in court. In you know, cutting a check. I mean, I keep hearing Curtis Mayfield's song. I'm your pusher man. Remember that. From Superfly, the movie that I was not allowed to see because I was a little girl, but you know, of course, the soundtrack was was real big. But thank you, thank you for that. Thank you for that. By the way, how is the lady doing? Oh, I I I don't know, Santita. I mean, Mm. that's why I'm so devastated because, like, I had no tools to deal with someone hooked on painkillers. I had no tools. Hadn't been taught that, so I I I still have a hole in my soul. Well, you know, you did the best that you could, but you know, Attorney C. K. Hoffler, you see how you know on the on the macro level and on the micro level how this impacted people. And so now it's before the Supreme Court. This one woman who lost a son to the opioid crisis said of the Sackler family, "I don't want their money. I want them in prison." What about accountability? Some people would say, okay, he became an addict. That's his fault. But wait a minute. When you flood a town, CK, of 90,000 with 100 million pills, you target a town of 380 people with, what is it, 5.7 million pills. Who does that? 
Well, Santita, uh, good morning. Now, I, I, I think you may sigh. know this, but I got to. <laughs> you heard a sigh because I am an opioid trial lawyer. I do opioid litigation. I represent the city of Flint, Michigan. And so I'm going to bring it home. I'm glad you started with a caller and thank him for sharing this because what I want to share with him is addiction is addiction. And when you're, you, when you're accustomed to dealing with street drugs, like street, there's no bigger street drug than heroin. And heroin is an opiate. So the, the impact of opioids, and this is something that we are completely missing, many of us in our community, is exceptional in the African-American community. In West Virginia, people talk a lot about West Virginia, Santita, because its statistics are overwhelming. And in West Virginia, because it's a, a, a blue-collar, basically, state, where you've got mines, where you've got people who are injured, workplace injuries, working blue-collar jobs a lot. Um, and I'm not ma- making disparaging comment about that. I'm just saying, in some of those environments, the doctors were absolutely uh, aggressive and prescribing opioid medications. And in the early years, in the early years, the doctors were part of the problem. There were pill mills, meaning people could get opioids for any reason, no reason, without going through the traditional protocols, that med- the medical protocols that a standard of care would mandate for a doctor to prescribe them. And so as a result, you had people that were hooked. Some opioids are more addictive than crack cocaine. So that's why it is, this is really, it has become a crisis. And the thing that how it creeps up on you in our communities and in all communities, quite frankly, is if you have a baby, like I did, if you have more than one baby, or if you have your first child, you're going to be prescribed an opioid, whether you have deliver naturally, which I didn't, or if you have a C-section, if you have any surgery, if you've been in a car accident, any of that, sort of the basic common things that we see in terms of pain management, the, the, the cure or what they give you to address pain is an opioid. So it is very, very common for people to receive opioids as a way of addressing pain. The way it becomes deadly, the way it becomes problematic, the way it has infected, infected and impacted communities is that when doctors stop prescribing, based on the litigation, by the way, when they stop prescribing and being so abusive of the, of the opioids um, with their patients, then people had to get a fix. And when you are addicted, you will, you will feed that fix. And so you went from opioids that were legally prescribed by your doctor to on-the-street fentanyl to on-the-street drugs to address that addiction because it is so highly addictive. We gotta remember at their core, opioids were designed to to, pro- to provide relief for cancer pain. Mm. I don't know if Dr. Knighton is still on the phone, but cancer pain. That Hold was Hold on, is Dr. Knighton still there? Op- because she did want she please get her back. Please ask her to come back because she did want to she wanted to stay uh, to to look at this because I think this is you know this is in her wheelhouse and yours. Cancer it absolutely pain. Absolutely, it's cancer pain. Opioids were created to address cancer pain. Now, anytime you take something that will get rid of cancer pain, some of the worst pain that we know exists in in the history of medicine, 
is cancer pain. And opioids were originally designed to address that. So imagine how powerful it is to have an opioid that would address or take away that cancer pain. Don't get me started, Santia. In our litigation, we sued over 20 defendants. And the people who are culpable, who need to be held accountable, are people who are involved in every step of the process. Much like tobacco litigation or the, the tobacco industry, and I was a tobacco trial lawyer, um, the, the, the opioid industry, the compound, duped the public. Initially, they duped the doctors and saying, oh, no, 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 this is not addictive. Oh, it's not addictive. There might be addictive qualities, but it's not addictive. And, and of course, when something gets rid of pain and you're in excruciating pain, you've just had surgery and you take something and it gets rid of the pain, you're going to take it until you have no more pain. And then if you are taking an opioid that is highly addictive, then the next thing you know, you can't do without that. So from the doctors to the manufacturers to the owners to the people who did the promotions, the marketing, all of those people in the chain of on that chain need to be held accountable and that's what this litigation is about so Hold now the on. question she's that, back just so that you know she's back dr knighton is okay. back dr yeah. knighton i was talking about the reason why i called your name to make sure you're still on the line and to pray that you were still on the line was because as you know with the exceptional training experience that you have is that opioids were created originally to address cancer pain and so mm-hmm. the, the proliferation of opioids or, or products that are, have an opiate bat base um, has this just been devastating, has been actually doctors were using it as just, you know, how you give aspirin to a patient for any type Absolutely. of pain. And it was, it was getting Absolutely. out of control. And there, were, and there were pill mills, mills that people could go to yeah. and just get opioids legally. Prescribed by a doctor. Yes. Very little oversight, Absolutely. very little input with the patient. And it was, in my impression, almost criminal. I have to be very careful, you know, and criminal, but almost criminal in the sense that there was no oversight. So then I litigation agree. arose, congressional oversight. Now we are where we are. So now it's the time for accountability. Who should be held accountable? Everybody in the process. Everything. Because I'm on the side where I represent plaintiffs. And I see it every day. And what people don't realize in our community is when you see people strung out, they are strung out nowadays. Crack cocaine is like, you know, well, whatever, that's history. It's opioids. The the faith community has to absorb. Santita, let me bring it home to the church. It is the faith community that now is absorbing and taking care of middle class families who who are so addicted. Because, see, when you're on the street, and you're doing street drugs, you're going to turn to the street for help. But when you're, when you're somebody who's working and are hooked because of a doctor prescribing and, it, and you, you go into that abyss, you turn to other organizations. You turn to the church. You turn to, to, to entities and institutions that can help you. So this opioid crisis is a crisis in the black community. Please hear me. Because I remember when I first was doing the pitch to um, the city of Flint, which, as we know, is a predominantly black city. Um, the, the initial response was, well, how is this affecting our community? Boy, when we did our presentation, they were like, how in the world do we not know this? And we don't know this mm-hmm. because it's been painted and marketed as really a suburban white problem. Well, it on. is a knee-deep. It, it, 
It's a knee-deep problem. But see, now you see the the SCOTUS blog (laughs) says the court, the Supreme Court is conflicted over this bankruptcy plan for Purdue Pharma. Pharma. I mean, do they shield the Sacklers from accountability, from liability? They knew that. So will they be allowed to keep their billions? I mean, I want to hear from you and Dr. Knighton, Attorney Hoffman. Well, I'm going to defer to Dr. I'm going to ask Dr. Knight to speak on that because I have a particular view um, because I'm in the litigation. I'm not in the litigation before the U.S. Supreme Court, but certainly Purdue is one of the people that we sued, obviously. And um, I have a particular perspective on that, but I, I think that I'd like to hear from Dr. Knighton first. Well, she's here because you wanted her back. <laughs> you said I need so, medical personnel. So I just want to say you're right ck it does impact our communities but i think and even too there's the outpatient side of things but there's also inpatient and being a nurse that took care of patients pre-op and post-op you are told that pain is whatever they say it is i can tell you that many nurses can be put on the stand from around that time and they will tell you how many times we got in trouble meaning we got rolled up we were told that we were wrong. We had conflict with doctors. Jobs were at risk when we told them that the patients were being given too much and that we felt that their pain for which they thought they were being treated for was not the pain that was adequate enough to have that amount of medication. Sadly, when I went into nursing, I'll never forget, I was on the floor at 24 years old and literally within a year. Two of my co-workers, my closest co-workers, because we all were on the unit at the same time, died. My one friend, who was 25, got caught stealing narcotics out of the drawer. And when she went, so the hospital in itself, a predominantly white hospital, she is African-American, they reported her to the Board of Nursing. And instead of the Board of Nursing supporting her as we would have supported our patients, they fired her. She went home and she overdosed at the age of 25. So I lost two of my friends that I work with closely in the same manner because of that. When there is that pain scale, and we talked about this, you know, a while ago, the fact that who created the pain scale, who validated the pain scale in terms of a scientist, okay, to say that pain is whatever the patient says it is. Where there is pain and where it is whatever the patient says it is, the one question that never gets asked is are we talking about an actual physical pain or are we talking about an emotional pain? And you're right. I agree 100%, CK. When we are talking about an opioid in the hospital, we are talking about crack, cocaine, and heroin on our streets because it provides the same exact ingredients. If we know, for example, that diacetylmorphine is heroin and morphine is included in some of those pills or in some of the treatments, we talk about hydromorphone and the derivatives of it, then we're essentially giving them street drugs, but just doing it in a legalized manner. And so I do agree. We have gone to a spectrum, and I'm saying collectively, of where there is accountability that needs to be held. But I do also empathize for the medical students, nursing students that have come in that wanted to do nothing but achieve a career in the medical field, but was coerced 
by leadership, coerced by their management, that this was the right thing to do, when deep down inside, many of them knew that it was not. And so it'll be fascinating and hurtful for me to see how much of that comes out when we're talking about how many people's arms were twisted in order for them to continue to give all of those drugs that nurses saw. I'm talking about decades before we are where we are right now. We saw this coming. CK, I've got about four minutes left here. The question before, one of the questions before the court is, should the, the, should the Sacklers' wealth so much of which is derived from this crisis that appears, you know, look, they dump these pills on these people. Black, white, brown, yellow, and red just dump the pills. Should they be shielded or not? I mean, I'm just asking. Oh, you know, I mean, if, and if it's what? a question that you shouldn't answer, I, I certainly I'd like to know from, from Dr. Knighton, since she's right there, there on the ground caring for these patients, too. When you're saying pain, pain, what? pain, 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 squeezing that button in that hospital bed. Well, let me just say this. I really shouldn't answer that question directly, okay. but I will answer. I will give you a hypothetical. I will give you a hypothetical as a plaintiff's lawyer. As a plaintiff's lawyer, I believe everybody should be held accountable, period, end of discussion. In litigation, there are deals that are struck every day. And those deals that are struck enable settlements that sometimes are very, very helpful, productive, useful for those victims. And when there's a settlement and when there's a deal, sometimes there's a settlement, there's a deal. So I, I have to answer it in that way because I'm involved in opioid litigation. But let me just say this again. I believe that everyone should be held accountable. We all have to be held accountable. But to get out of litigation when we're on the hot seat, sometimes we strike deals. Criminals do it. They take plea deals. In a civil context, they settle. And they, and they agree to certain terms. And so I think all of that should be considered. But let me just say this, and, and then I'm going to pitch it to Dr. Knight, and this is why I'm so delighted that she's on the phone to give a perspective on this. The problem is not going to go away with a whole bunch of money. The problem is going to be addressed through programs, through treatment, through, through all of that, because just like any other addiction, Throwing money at it's not going to help. There have to be programs. There has to be recourse. There has to be something that people can go to who are, who are impacted, who are affected. And that's what the money can help to provide. That's what money going to municipalities, going to cities um, has helped to provide. So, you know, U.S. Supreme Court, I bet they are conflicted. But welcome to the club, U.S. Supreme Court, and I hope you do the right thing. I've got a minute and a half Dr. Knighton, should their wealth be should their wealth be shielded? I mean, you've seen the impact, and when you hear that millions of pills were dumped on a community of 380 pe people gets 5.7 million pills dumped on it in six years. I mean, what is that? A community of 90,000 gets 100 million pills over a decade. What is that, Dr. Knighton? It's not surprising. It's not surprising, and I do think that they should be held accountable. At the end of the day, it's just like with anything else. You know, if your name is on it, then it is your responsibility. There are a lot of people that have died as a result of this. There are a lot of government dollars that are going to have to be put towards fixing this problem. 
So they should not be able to get off from not being held accountable when it is taxpayer dollars that is getting ready to have to alleviate the issue that they caused. And so, yes, they should be held accountable. The other piece, and I know we'll talk about this at another time, is when we think about treatments such as Narcan, I would hope that this company has no stake in creating the treatment after they've created the problem because essentially that's something else that they should be held accountable for providing as well to be the treatment for some of the things that are occurring. Oh, my heavens. Take them out of it. Purdue. Uh, don't, and get please, me, don't get me started. Girl, and don't, don't let them come back started. onto another name. I mean, what is that? I mean, look, we paid what for the COVID is, vaccine. It's big business. And, and now is, they want us to pay for the COVID vaccine. I'm like, are you nuts? What is that? Yeah, but that's why I say, like, created the problem and then create the treatment of Narcan. Oh, no, so no, I'm no, 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 no. to know if Purdue makes Narcan. Oh, no, 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 no. That I'm just curious. Yeah, it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work. Stay right here. Let's talk about the grillings of the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and UPenn. They are being accused of not protecting Jewish students from anti-Semitism on those campuses. Harvard President Claudine Gay, their first black president, indeed, she had to defend pro-Palestinian marches on her campus. What should happen on a campus? Hey, um, three of us went to college, and you know when you go to college, everybody comes and speaks. And you just have to swallow hard and deal with it, if it's someone with whom you disagree. But... You know, we'll see. I want to know what you think, particularly in this moment. What a lot of Jewish students are feeling threatened, and they are being threatened, but so are pro-Palestinian demonstrators, and so are Muslims, and on and on and on. It's just it's just that kind of time. Back with more of the Santita Jackson Show in just a few minutes. Call me at 773-763-9278. Back in a minute. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show. WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station. The Democrats will be here, and so will we in the summer of 2024. The most time spent listening of any radio station in the Chicago area was WCPT during the last election cycle. So you want to keep it locked right here. All of the players from the the Democratic Party will be here. And, of course, my brothers and sisters to the north, AM 950 Radio, the voice of Progressive Minnesota, and my morning stars all over the country and all over the world. Sending you so much love, Linear Bob and Andre and Kenneth. And let me see who else is Barbara Bacon from Oak Park, Renee Criswell here in Chicago. Paula, how you doing, Paula? And Francis and A.W., how you doing, everybody? Raphael, how you doing, sweetie? Jewel up there in New York, sending you all so much love. I want you to call me. Shirley in beautiful Philadelphia. I will not forget that, Shirley. <laughs> call me at 773-763-9278. 773-763-9278. What about the presidents of MIT? You, Penn, and Harvard being grilled on efforts to counter anti-Semitism on campus. Uh, what do you think about that? On the same day, and there was a resolution in the, the House of Representatives equating anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. Um, is what should happen on a college campus? 
That's why we're still trying to get Dr. Julianne Malvo, because she's been the president, not only of, uh, she's the president emeritus of Bennett College for Women, but also she is a graduate of MIT, of one of these schools that was grilled. And, you know, my university experience was that you had everybody there, everybody there, from the far left to the far right, you know, because... You need to hear these ideas. That's where you hear them when you're in college or at a university. But that's not happening. So I want to know what your thoughts are. I mean, should should uh, they be held on the rack? And in fact, some of these, uh, some of their donors have been have been demanding that they uh, be fired from their jobs for not doing enough to shield these students from. Feeling unsafe and feeling unsafe and being unsafe, that's a very real thing. But we've seen that with people who marched for, uh, in support of Palestine. Um, they've been doxxed. We are seeing people who are losing job offers. We're seeing donors pull massive amounts of money from these, uh, from these schools and colleges. I mean, so you tell me what your thoughts are. You tell me what your thoughts are. Call me at 773-763-WCPT, 773-763-9278, as we talk about the legal aspects of it with, and the social and political, but starting with the legal, with, of course, legal a Q&A with CK. Let's get to some of these headlines, everybody. Donald Trump was accused of sending supporters to the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Federal prosecutors went further in tying the former president to the 2021 attack in a new ruling. They accused him of lying about elections and encouraging violence. Prosecutors say they intend to introduce evidence of these acts at the former president's criminal election obstruction trial, which begins in the middle of the primary season in March. Senate negotiations are are well over sending more aid to Ukraine are breaking down. Republicans are demanding U.S. border restrictions in exchange for billions in Ukraine aid. Yesterday, at least a dozen senators walked out of a classified briefing. And in other news, Senator Tommy Tuberville, the Republican from Alabama, has eased his hold on military promotions, ending a nearly 10-month, one-year standoff, everybody. Israeli strikes in southern Gaza are overwhelming hospitals. Now, mind you, the Israelis told the Gazans to go south, and now they're bombing them in the south. More than 16,000 people have been killed already. 70% of them are women and children. A school, a school where civilians were sheltering was bombed as Israel expanded its offensive in the south. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had a contentious meeting with families of the hostages, the Israeli hostages still held by Hamas, who accused him of not doing enough to return their loved ones. The fourth Republican primary is tonight in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy will be on the stage. Haley has emerged as the most viable alternative for Trump, although former President Trump leads in the polls by a mile. A fully, fully automatic weapons are reappearing on U.S. streets, everybody. A small device that plugs into some semi-automatic handguns and rifles can make them capable of firing. Get this. 20 bullets in one second. 20 bullets in one second. The devices can be made using 3D printers. It's going to be a beautiful day in Chicago, albeit cloudy. 
40 degrees will be the high, and 44 degrees will be the high in Minneapolis-St. Paul, partly sunny. Note, I did not say partly cloudy, everybody. In the NBA, the Hornets will be playing Chicago tonight in Chicago. The Spurs will be playing Minnesota tonight in Minnesota. If the NFL had a night off, yay for them. The NHL, the Predators 4, Chicago 3, the Wild 5, the Flames 2. Whew. Those are some of the headlines on the Santita Jackson Show. The presidents of... Three of the most prominent universities from the Ivy League were brought uh, were brought to uh, Congress to testify. Uh, Howard, Harvard University, Howard, well, that was a slip, CK. Harvard University's Claudine Gay, the first black president, by the way, of Harvard. The University of Pennsylvania's Liz McGill and MIT's Sally Kornbluth testified before the committee led by Representative Virginia Fox, a Republican from North Carolina. The hearing gave Republicans an opportunity to express their frustrations, everybody, uh, with the college presidents for, in their terms, not doing enough to aggressively condemn those on their campuses whose members, uh, they said, foster anti-Semitism. I don't. I saw the hearings. I'm trying to figure out exactly what all of that means and what protections, what protections uh, students have, faculty have. What protections? What are the obligations of these of these presidents? What are they supposed to do? You know what? Please call um, Alex. Reach out to Dr. Malvo. She is waiting on us right now. And you know what? I'm gonna send you another number for her. And let's just see. Let me have her. In fact, I'm going to have her. Uh, let me. I'm going to do that. But CK, very quickly, because I'm going to get Dr. Malvo on since she has been the president of a university and see absolutely uh, just what you, you know, just what the deal is. What? How did she see this yesterday? But how do you see this? Um, well, well, Santita, I see this as a natural progression of what's happening in the war in Gaza. You know, we have students on most college campuses that are protesting the following one camp or another belief. Either they believe that what Israel is doing is wrong and that Israeli, the Israeli government is engaged in genocide. So they are either um, pro-Palestinians or sympathize with the Palestinians. Or they believe that Israel is right, Hamas was wrong, and in doing this, they are really... Um, advocating for Israel and advocating for all Jewish people. So we're seeing on college campuses this clash. And then there are a lot of people that fall in the middle. So the, And college, colleges, and because the Ivy League schools are going to get the greatest publicity because they're Ivy League schools, um, and so the fact that there's a congressional hearing um, to, to address these issues and basically attack the president's of these three Ivy League schools was not surprising. It was just going to be a matter of time before it happened. What do I think about the legal questions surrounding it? The First Amendment, and I've been a First Amendment trial lawyer, as you know, Cynthia. Um, The First Amendment of the Constitution technically does protect freedom of speech. It does not protect violence associated with freedom of speech. But it does protect freedom of speech. You have the ability also to assemble and to protest in a nonviolent way. There would not be a civil rights movement, there would not have been civil rights, if we didn't have the ability to protest as African Americans and as as affected people in this country, as minorities in this country. So we understand that the First Amendment is the the one of the amendments in the Constitution that affords us that ability. Now, we know historically 
that even as African-Americans, when we were protesting and fighting for civil rights, your dad leading the way, one of the great leaders um, in that in that in that fight, Santita, that we were arrested. We were we were killed. We were attacked by dogs. We were harassed. Our houses were burned. We know the history and what has happened to this country surrounding protesting, not in a nonviolent way and fighting for what we believed in. So if we play it forward to what's happening today, without even, you don't even have to take a position on one side or the other. The question for me is, do these children have the right to voice their opinions on how they feel on college campuses? That's number one. And Mm -hmm. number two, what action, if any, do the colleges have to take when it escalates, the conduct escalates to harassment or violence? Well, hold that thought. That's the question. So, so hold that thought because we got Dr. Malvo. My mistake, my, my board operator is brilliant. I sent the wrong number, so please forgive me, Dr. Malvo. Dr. Malvo and Attorney C.K. Hoffler have other um, media commitments, but that have well, C.K. has a legal commitment. She's got to get into court. And, of course, Dr. Malvo has another media commitment. But what about this? I mean, I was reading the Daily Mail. It's very interesting. As you read all of these American journals, they say the presidents of, of the universities have been grilled. But the Daily Mail singled out the president of Harvard, first black person to be the president, first black woman, too. They said she's defending Palestine marches. That's the headline. At heated congressional hearing on anti-Semitism. So what is this about? And what are the responsibilities of the president of a university? You, the, you're the president emeritus of the vaunted uh, Bennett College women, but you also went to MIT. That's where you got your PhD. Dr. Malvo. Yes. Uh, I, I was cringing at the um, just the visual of these college presidents being spoken to very harshly. One Republican uh, uh, legislator, Congresswoman uh, Fox from North mm-hmm. Carolina. She said uh, to answer and atone for what happened on their campuses. Well, answer, sure, or explain is a better word, but atone? Why should they atone? But, you know, being a college president is like being a juggler. You've got all these balls in the air. You've got all these constituents you have to um, satisfy, students, parents, faculty, staff, the community, the board of trustees, ultimately, because they're your bosses. And that's often a tightrope. Now we've got another tightrope. The conflict in Israel and with Hamas is like a, it's like kryptonite. Uh, there's no right or wrong side. A right side, of course, what Hamas did on October 7th was horrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rape of women is horrific. But also, the extent to which Palestinians have been pushed up against a wall is horrific. October 7th was perhaps contextually a response to a people who feel that they have been brutalized. I remember the Claude McKay poem, If We Must Die. And Claude McKay was a Harlem Renaissance writer. And he said at the end, press the wall, dying, but fighting back. And in between that... Let us die nobly. So yes. they assign nobility to their fight, right? To their struggle, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, how college presidents are stuck between a rock and a hard place. They've got donors on all sides. Um, they've got uh, prominent alums on all sides. Every you know, The best I think they can do is condemn 
what happened on October 7th, but also condemn what ha- what has happened to Palestinian people. And I don't have to say, I watched part of the thing, I didn't watch all of it. I was really proud of these women. Because they would not allow the Virginia Foxes of the world to force them to atone. And I use the word atone much disgust. Um, because what are they to atone for? And I think they all pushed back and said, and what about Islamophobia? Because the hmm. two go hand in hand. So they, they basically, um, they did their job. I think they did a good job. But I don't think this is over with. The Department of Education is investigating many campuses. These among them, are they investigating for Islam, Islamophobia? Did they ever investigate for racism? You know, you can go back to our annals and tell stories of our foremothers and fathers. My own mentor, Dr. Phyllis Wallace, recalled that the um, dormitories at Yale did not accept black people. She spent her uh, first year of graduate school um, living in the basement of a church uh, mm-hmm. with a very, you know, obviously uh, a pastor who was very, had hospitality in mind, but really not a dormitory. Um, she talked about how lonely she was, uh, but that was the racism that was acceptable. I'm not suggesting that any form of hate should be acceptable. No anti-Semitism, no Islamophobia. But I'm saying that college presidents are placed in a space where they're juggling this, where they're juggling it. No matter what their personal sympathies are, they have people from every group asking them for support. They can, they can, and they must them Hamas for October 7th, and if there's subsequent brutality, but then you've lost 15,000-plus Palestinians because of Israeli bombs. Can we condemn that, too? Should we? Must we? With that enormous loss of life, and with the relatives of some of their students being involved in this carnage. So, I, as I say, I just think that they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, and the violent, vociferous words that are coming from some of the um, people who are saying, well, everything is anti-Semitic, violent, vociferous words basically dash at others. Um, Billboards around Harvard with students who are protesting with their likenesses lifted up. Where's Where's the hearing on that? What about the corporations that are threatening not to hire these people? I mean, why are we having a hearing on that, Dr. Malvo? There you go. Well, there you go. There's a young sister uh, at NYU who lost a coveted position because she showed some sympathy for Palestinians. So we really, I mean, this is beyond the pale. It's censorship at the worst order. If you don't show enormous sympathy for Israel and ignore what's happening to Gazans, the people who live in Gaza. Yeah, and it's so confusing there right now. I was just talking to a friend whose mother is there. Here's the story. First, the IDF told people to go south. Now they've gone south. Now they're telling them to leave the south. So where do they go? The United Nations no, said there's no, no, no. no wait, place. Wait. In between that, they're bombing the south. Yeah, after <laughs> they told them to go there. Okay. What After they tell the people to go there, and, and you know they and they sit on television and say, "Well, you know, we're doing our best. We can't." Do. And they claim that you know Hamas is embedded with the population. But when you bomb a multi-story apartment building to get one Hamas person, 
you basically have sentenced all those other people, if not to death, to homelessness and to destruction. But, but let me ask they, you this. As a college president, are you supposed to explore those issues, talk about those issues? Do you have the space to speak about them freely? And I want to get that answer from you and from CK, um, from you as a college, as a former college president, as the former dean of one of the most respected universities on earth, as a grad, as a Ph.D. from MIT and CK as a lawyer. But first you, Dr. Malvo, I mean, how do you handle this? Well, the thing, you know, the hard lesson that I learned is that sometimes you just have to shut up because actually you can do no right. But in this climate, no one wants to shut up. They want to speak out. And the speaking out is what will often, if, if people don't choose their words very carefully, the speaking out is what will get them in front of a congressional committee. It's what will get them in trouble, which is what will cause them to lose, lose donors, which that's the, you know, that's the, um, you know, the punishment from hell is to lose donors because the first job of a college president is to um, raise money, frankly. It's not to do intellectual whatever, whatever. It's to raise money. But, you know, there is something called it. Robert Franklin, a former president of Morehouse when, when I was at Bennett, talked about the moral authority of college presidents and about the responsibility mm -hmm. to speak out about certain issues. I mean, he was really brilliant about that. And he's absolutely right, but the question is, at what cost, to what end, and then you're constantly juggling that. It's not an easy place to be, especially in times like these, with um, basically the censorship group out and ready to just um, pillory someone. That, that hearing was horrible. It was horrible. Um, that Virginia Fox, atone for your campus? Oh, please. But um, none of her colleagues different with her and that was what was more troubling to me than anything else ck yeah. any legal protections i've got one minute well uh, the legal protections they've got to protect they've got to protect freedom of speech but by the same token they've got to protect the students from violence i think those college presidents handled an impossible situation with a great deal of aplomb and 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 they should be applauded for that and i think that this is there are no winners in this they are not going to win. There are going to be consequences to their testimony, unfortunately for them. So, Santita, we just have to keep watching this. And we, we can't silence people who want to protest. We just can't. It's not going to happen. It never does work. So I think that we just have to stay tuned and every day watch this and, and, and understand that right now those college presidents have a thankless job because they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. Mm -hmm. So... And, and, and that, that the First Amendment, that's what it is. That's what gives people the ability to do this. But those college presidents have not violated the law in any way. These are political issues. That hearing was political 100%. Had nothing to do with the law. And unfortunately, I've got to run, Santita. I've got to run to court. You told me to talk about court TV today from 6 to 7 and on Friday from 6 to 7. Eastern time. Eastern time. All right yes. now. 6 to 7 Eastern Time today and on Friday? And on Friday. All right. And, and thank you to the Morning Stars who are going to speak. I'm sorry I have to leave, but when a judge says you got to be someplace, you got to be someplace. Run. So have a great day. <laughs> All right. Run. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Dr. Malvo. 
Dr. Malvo, I have about Take 30 care. seconds for you. If you could speak to those presidents, 30 seconds, what would you tell them to do? I would, I would tell them to be careful. Tell them to uh, make sure they have a good speechwriter or a group of people so that they, they must choose their words carefully. At the same time, they must speak if they choose to, if they feel free to, and they must never, never, never respond to someone who tells them to atone for their campus. We're dealing with young people, amazing young people, on many sides of many issues. We've had many heated debates on campuses all over the country. That's what a campus is about. Ooh, I wish I could have seen you up there yesterday. Oh. Oh, but then, too, I mean, we, we would have had to run to Washington, Dwight McKee and Attorney Fancher, because they would have put her in prison. But I love it. The brilliant Dr. Julianne Malvo. When can we catch you in media this week? I got about ten seconds for you. Um, next Monday, nine a.m. Malvo exclamation point WPFW eighty nine point three FM. If anyone is here in the Washington area, we've got a book signing tonight at Mahogany Books at seven p.m. Okay, all right. And, of course, you're on Roland Martin's show regularly. I wish you'd be on mine, but I'm loving her. Anyhow, love Dr. Malvo. We can work to... it out. We can okay. work it out. Give me a regular we're gonna... day and we can hook it up. We're going to do that. <laughs> Santita Jackson Show right here on the Santita Jackson Show. Let's talk about what happened with these pre- college presidents yesterday. What should happen? What should be allowable on a college campus? What should? You, what can you say? What, you can't, what can't you say? How can people feel safe and protected? Um, hmm. And free. Back in just a minute. We can change the world, change the world, change the world. Oh, yes, we can. We can change the world, we can change the world, change the world. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Boy, everybody, the Santita Jackson Show on WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, and AM 950 Radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. Let us talk about what is happening on these college campuses. Indeed, uh, the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and UPenn, Ivy League schools, among the most vaunted schools in the world, they were grilled on their efforts to counter anti-Semitism on campus. Some people are saying that is this about countering anti-Semitism on campus or stifling Palestinian vo- voices? How do you keep people safe? How do people feel safe? A lot of Jewish students are actually being threatened. Palestinian students are being threatened. Palestinian pal- people, students who want justice for Palestinians are being threatened. Their, na- their faces and names are being put on billboards up at Harvard. No one's talking about that. Why don't you ever hearing about that? I want you to call me at 773. 763-9278-773-763-9278. No one should feel unsafe on any place, let alone on a college campus. But you've got to be able to have a free exchange of ideas as long as the exchange is elevated and not threatening. So I want to talk with Attorney Mark Pancher, National Conference of Black Lawyers, and Dwight McKee, Dr. D., a brilliant social scientist, the dean of the Ma'afa Redemption Project, one of the founders of Operation Push, and... Um, well, let me start with you, Mark Fancher. What do you make of this? I mean, that those hearing though, that hearing yesterday was a lot, and you just heard Dr. Julian Malvo as if as the president emeritus of Bennett 
and her PhD came from, she, she earned her PhD at MIT. She was highly, profoundly insulted by what she saw. Yes. You know, well, I find anything that hack politicians do to be offensive, but, you know, this, this was <laughs> particularly offensive, just, just the, the hearing itself. Uh, but step, stepping back away from it and looking at the, the, the substance of the issues, uh, you know, I think, think our sisters uh, in the preceding segment were absolutely correct that uh, university administrators uh, are charged with really walking a tightrope. Uh, they've got a difficult, uh, you know, needle to thread uh, because on the one hand, uh, there is the First Amendment that's present. Uh, and universities in particular are regarded as marketplaces of ideas uh, where the discussion and the debate is expected to be more robust uh, than it is uh, in, in the broader society. That this is the place uh, where you come with controversial ideas, where people battle it out, uh, where they, they debate vigorously, where they challenge each other. And it's expected that through that type of exchange, uh, that you're going to advance, uh, you know, the 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 uh, the ability of, of the society and the academic community uh, to think more, to analyze better. Uh, but on the other hand, university administrators are also bound uh, by Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, uh, which requires that uh, as long as their institution is receiving federal funds that they cannot allow or sustain uh, any types of activities which are racially discriminatory. Uh, so it imposes upon them an obligation uh, to ensure that whatever conduct, whatever speech uh, that goes on does not transform uh, the university campus into a racially hostile educational environment that violates that provision. Uh, so it, it's, it's a difficult balancing act for them and I, I have been involved in those types of challenges in the past. But what it comes down to from my perspective is the question of consistency. Uh, to what extent do university administrators uh, administer in a way that's fair and just uh, and, and equitable uh, as opposed to favoring uh, one group over another? And what we have seen many times is that university administrators do a pretty good job. I think that these three administrators that were called before Congress probably are doing the best job that they can do under very difficult circumstances. But what happens is that the broader community injects itself into the situation and creates uh, a type of, of dynamic that, notwithstanding the efforts of the administrators, creates uh, 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 an unfairness. Uh, an imbalance, an injustice that's present. Uh, you know, I can refer back to uh, 1993. You know, one of the university presidents that uh, appeared yesterday was from the University of Pennsylvania, and it has its own history. Uh, back in the early 1990s, my wife and I lived in Philadelphia, and um, we were able to observe an incident where uh, there were sisters, uh, you know, young black women, from the from Delta Sigma Theta sorority, mm. who one evening uh, were practicing uh, for their step show, uh, and there were white students who were leaning out of the, the dorm windows and screaming at them and yelling at them, uh, telling them to be quiet, shut up, go away, 
And one uh, young, one student who I believe was Israeli born uh, yelled out, you know, you're a bunch of water buffalo. The zoo is down the street. Go back to the zoo. And once, they, once he said that, uh, then it triggered a process on, on, in the university that resulted in him being charged with violating the university's racial harassment policy. I think that was appropriate. I mean, if you know anything about the history of Africans in America, uh, then you know that it is or in the world. Uh, they are frequently compared to animals. Uh, it's coded language uh, for, uh, you know, race, racial, uh, you know, a derogatory racial kind of a reference. Uh, and, and so I think that that was appropriate. But the world rallied around this young man. Uh, they began to accuse the university of uh, succumbing to those who were political correctness uh, fanatics. Uh, they, they labeled him as a darling of the First Amendment and all that it's supposed to stand for. Uh, there were furious debates. Uh, one of them uh, my wife engaged in with Nat Hentoff, the late writer. Uh, you know, all kinds of things, uh, you know, happened that portrayed this young, you know, this young white Jewish man as a horrible victim of, of political correctness. And meanwhile, uh, these young black women uh, who had been the targets of, of, of a horrible experience were left nameless and faceless and abandoned. Uh, and they, they reached a point where they just felt that it was futile. Uh, for them to even push this because the world had, had risen up against them. Uh, and so nobody wanted to protect them. They wanted to protect, protect only this young white man. Uh, and so it was only a few months after that that the racial content of the Daily Pennsylvanian, uh, the, the student newspaper at the university, began to run a series of racially offensive uh, articles, commentaries, uh, all kinds of content which was extremely uh, uh, disturbing uh, to black students on the campus. Uh, they were alarmed about it. They complained about it. They discussed it. They challenged it. They asked for, uh, for this to, to end, and they got nowhere. And so on one morning, they uh, uh, engaged in a carefully designed plan to position black students at all of the distribution points for the Daily Pennsylvanian. And when the papers were dropped off, they confiscated them and took them all away, 14,000 papers, and dumped them in dumpsters. Uh, so when that was, and they left behind, they, they didn't, it wasn't a cowardly act. They left behind uh, messages saying that we did it, and we did it because this paper, you know, is, is, uh, un, un, is un offensive. And it, it, it really has gone beyond uh, where, where you should go in a newspaper in terms of the type of content that it has racially. And people need to think about this. It was a First Amendment expression uh, in, in the purest sense. But immediately the world uh, lined up against these students and began to call for them to be criminally prosecuted. Uh, and so once again, my wife and I, uh, on behalf of the National Conference of Black Lawyers, began to counsel them and advocate for them. And once we began that, then they targeted us. <laughs> they began to say that we were irresponsible as legal professionals, that we were setting a bad example for these students, uh, and that we were not teaching them to respect uh, the First Amendment and, and the rights of free speech of everyone 
uh, and the, the, the arguments that we made uh, that these were students who were a minority population, uh, who were placed in a situation where these messages, which were racially hostile, were pervasive throughout the campus, that they could not be avoided, and that they were essentially in a racially hostile environment of the kind that is prohibited by Title VI. All of that fell on deaf ears. Nobody wanted to listen to that. They only wanted to listen to uh, the arguments of the, the, the racist writers for the Daily Pennsylvanian who said that they had been silenced. So I, I think that, you know, for those of us who are from oppressed communities, communities of color, marginalized communities, we see the contradiction. And, and when you have a hearing like yesterday, uh, where you call, where Congress calls these presidents to account not for the general harassment of students on both sides, but focuses heavily, if not exclusively, on the plight of Jewish students, uh, then it, it, it reaffirms uh, and reinforces the viewpoint that we have that there is this institutional historical uh, imbalance that exists when we're looking at the balancing act that, uh, that university administrators are expected to, uh, to, to carry out. Well, and throw this into the mix, Dwight McKee and attorney Mark Fancher. Hedge fund billionaire Bill Ackman is calling for their resignations. The presidents of Harvard, MIT, and, and UPenn. Now, mind you, he went to Harvard. He's a Harvard graduate. He said, quote, they need to resign in disgrace, close quote, citing disgust, according to the CNN report that just came out an hour ago. He cited disgust with their testimony. He said throughout the hearing, the three behaved like hostile witnesses he wrote on Twitter, also known as X, exhibiting a profound disdain for, for Congress with their smiles and smirks and their outright refusal to answer basic questions with a yes or no answer. Dwight McKee, your, thought, your thoughts, your response? Well, <clears throat> I saw the hearings yesterday, and it was despicable to me is that they didn't treat them like they were college presidents. They actually treated them like they were overseers on the plantation. The issue is not what's happening in Israel. The issue is, do students have a right to have an opinion about what's happening in Israel? And what they were telling the presidents is that if those students' opinions don't agree with our opinions, then your job is to make sure that their opinions are suppressed until we sign off on the opinions that they have. It's very interesting that the same group of people that complain, uh, explains every day about the Holocaust and how come more people didn't speak out and how come there was so much silence when they found out what was going on in Germany and those camps. Uh, and they protest today because there was not enough activity to support them then, is now taking a position that people don't have the right to speak out on the injustice that they see happening to other people. Uh, it's so hypocritical and so inconsistent. It's really Dred Scott all over again to me. And I think that the president's I think that that it puts them in a position where they become not purveyors of truth 
and justice and education uh, and the teaching of students to have ideas in the, the public marketplace and to fight for ideas. I think you put them in a position to become uh, overseers and that their job now becomes to look at whatever is dissonant and does not agree with the opinion of those who give the most money, uh, that their job is to rob these students of the, the opportunity to engage in ideas and to express uh, their contempt or their support for those ideas. And it puts them in a position to then, uh, the only remedy is for the presidents then to punish those students. Uh, who, do, who they think are out of, out of line. If my truth makes you uncomfortable, then you need to adjust your comfortability uh, before I uh, address my truth. And it's the same thing that's happening to, to, to blacks in Florida, where they will not allow us to teach certain truths because it makes some people uncomfortable to hear the truth same principle to me, and it's profoundly dangerous, and is a much bigger threat to democracy than anything else that I've seen. Why do you say that? Because that's what democracy is. By definition, democracy is the right for you to have an idea, to express your idea, to fight uh, in behalf of your idea. And if you're telling me that my ideas somehow violate uh, your uh, supposition for my, my right to have an idea because it's not your idea uh, that it, it, it violates somehow the law uh, or it violates your opinion of what the law is then it suppresses any freedom that I have of expression if I don't have the right to fight for my idea, if I don't have the right to to engage in public debate about my ideas, then I'm really not a citizen. I'm just a tool of the state or it's a tool of the power elite or a tool of the status quo. And that's not democracy. That's autocracy and dictatorship and tyranny. Attorney Mark Fancher, are there any protections that you have on a campus as a student, as a faculty member? I mean, let's just be there for a hot second. Well, well, the, um, th there is the First Amendment always. Uh, that, that's always available. And, you know, as, as I alluded to earlier, um, that it's expected that you're supposed to have more of an opportunity uh, to express yourself on a university campus than you have in many other settings and many other places in society. But, but this wasn't about respecting what the law allows uh, for students uh, who express sympathy for Palestinians. Uh, what this was was you know, a further manifestation of a mindset and an approach uh, which Zionists seem to be wed to, they, they're committed to this, uh, and that is that either you accept 
what we say, either you comply with what we direct you to comply with, either you agree with us and conform your conduct to what we find to be acceptable, or we will force you to. And it, it, it betrays not only sort of a, a brutish, uh, you know, ignorant uh, approach to trying to deal with people, um, but it, it also uh, it betrays extreme ignorance about the nature of humanity uh, and the nature of, of what life is all about. Uh, because whenever you come to anybody and you try and force them to do something that they believe is wrong, then that just reinforces the commitment of the people that you're trying to force to comply, uh, to trying to rebel, to trying to resist. And it exacerbates uh, whatever you perceive the problem to be into an even bigger problem. Uh, so by, com by bringing these presidents before Congress and basically uh, treating them with such disrespect, uh, treating them as though they don't warrant the, the type of respect that uh, you would expect that uh, university presidents should receive, then it creates widespread resentment uh, among people who understand where they're coming from and who understand the, uh, the, the, the objectives and the aspirations of those who express solidarity with Palestine. Uh, and the resistance is going to increase rather than decrease. Uh, for those who are irresponsible uh, and who have been responsible or who are the ones who are the perpetrators of intolerable and unacceptable harassment uh, of Jewish students, uh, then it's going to cause them to become ever more resentful and it's going to cause them to do more. So you just don't deal with people that way. Uh, you don't try and force them to do that, but that seems to be part of the, uh, a standard part of the playbook uh, for, for Zionists. Uh, we will you know, force you. Well, it takes me back 40 years. I know I bring it up a lot, but it did. I saw so much. It was a gift to have had that experience. <clears throat> Excuse me, in my Harvard interview. When this when I sat down, after 45 minutes in the pre-interview, my life did not make sense to the pre-interviewer. He couldn't make sense of the fact that my father went to the University of Chicago. He said, you know, that's a really, really great school. Right, your father went there? I'm like, yeah. I said, in fact, on a full scholarship, really? Huh. Your mother doesn't work outside the home. Oh, your brother's at St. Albans. Oh, wait a minute. You live over here. Oh, oh, wait a minute. You've been to Cuba? You've been... Mm, this is... My life wasn't making sense. A black girl, I guess, was not supposed to do those things. And when he finally asked me after 45 minutes, what is your father's name? And I told him, I knew it was going to be an issue. And my mother wanted to go to the interview with me because my parents had taken such a hit over their stance on Israeli security and Palestinian justice because 40 years ago you couldn't even mention the name, the term Palestinian, the noun, the people. I said, no, Mom, I'm going to be okay. It's a group of us, you know, uh, four of us are going today and four of, us are go four, of us are go four of us are going on one day, four of us are going on the other day. It's going to be all right. And, um, but my mother knew, but she uncharacteristically let me go. But when I walked into the room... This gentleman, Mr. Cohen, looked at me and he said, I don't like your father or his politics. Let's see about you. And the question that they kept pressing me on, Dwight, was, are you, if you get into Harvard, are you willing to distance yourself from your father and his politics? I said, absolutely not. You know, as a 17-year-old, you don't sass your adults, your, your seniors. So I couldn't, 
I was defenseless, essentially. And my parents would have gotten on me, Dwight, you know that. If I had retaliated, I had to let my parents fight that battle. But, I mean, this is not new. Dwight, I've got, I got about 90 seconds for you before we carry this a little bit over on the other side. Your thoughts. Where do you see this going? I think it's going to be, I, I think one, it, it, it uh, really exposes the uh, how this, this country operates and the inconsistency and who has the most power and who's in control and their willingness to, when necessary, to impose that uh, at the expense of anybody else's right and privileges. And, uh, and so I think it, it does two things, as Mark said. One is, is it not only exposes that there is an imbalance in terms of who has control of education and politics, but also it jeopardizes a lot of the uh, Jewish students mm-hmm. who don't feel that way. They, they they are much more democratic and much more much broader in their thinking, and they themselves are anti-Zionist, and it puts them in a position where people believe that they are like uh, the Zionists that are in control, and they're not, and it, it jeopardizes their relationships, huh? And they're not. I mean, it's just like this is such an unfair. Stay right there. I want to. Come to, hey, everybody, stay on the Santita Jackson Show YouTube channel. We're going to get some more thoughts from attorney Mark Fancher and Dwight McKee about this issue. I mean, just what should a college campus look like? I mean, what should happen? And, and who should be protected? Everybody should be protected. Everybody should feel safe. But you can't bully people into your point of view. That's not going to work. <laughs> can't wait to be with you on the Santita Jackson Show tomorrow. God bless everybody.